0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Last week, a group of very important people, including the U.S. secretaries of state and commerce and trade representatives from President Joe Biden's administration, met with top European Union officials in the heart of the Swedish Lapland for the fourth ministerial meeting of the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council, or TTC. Pressing needs were tackled, new initiatives were launched, commitments were made, and cooperation was deepened on a range of tech policy issues, at least according to the press releases to hear an unvarnished view from someone who was at the meeting about what might actually come of it all. I invited on a journalist who, in my opinion, is one of the best tech policy
0: reporters in the world. I'm Mark Scott. I'm Politico's chief technology correspondent.
1: Mark, you have just returned from a very interesting meeting uh, that I feel like is sort of less well-covered, a little bit off the beaten path. Can you tell folks just what went on in Sweden and what you... Observe there.
0: I mean, it wasn't just Sweden, it was northern Sweden. We were just on the south of the Arctic Circle in a place called Lulia, which is a town of about 75,000 people. And forgive my awful pronunciation. Um, It's the biannual EU US Trade and Tech Council Summit. Uh, What does that mean? It's been going on for about two years and it involves (laughs) Anthony Blinken. Gina Ramunda, the Commerce Secretary, and Catherine Tai, the uh, U.S. Trade Representative, getting together with their European counterparts, Margareta Vestager, who is the uh, she has a long title, but basically she's the European Commission's Digital Chief, and her trade counterpart, Valdis Dombrovskis, um, and they get together, they hash out hopefully uh, thorny issues on trade and tech to create some sort of transatlantic unity. And the idea basically is to sort of bridge some of the the divides that came up during the Trump administration.
1: I think from the U.S. side, it's perhaps right to see this as part of the kind of generally uh, pro-democratic effort that the Biden administration has uh, been on. Uh, So it's sort of a sort with the Summit for Democracy, uh, the Declaration for the Future of the
0: Internet, some of these types of activities. Yeah, Reading from my my notes, uh, America's back, right? So this is all about promoting to European allies that D.C. is taking these things seriously.
1: I uh, appreciated some of your coverage. You included uh, some some great details. You talked a little bit about the fact that uh, the AI conversation in particular took place over a lunch of cod loin and chocolate praline. <laughs> uh, AI seemed to have been the topic du jour. Uh, what was it all about? What, what was the goal between the US and EU counterparts there?
0: Sure, I, to, to carry it, I did not get the chocolate praline. So that's a shame from my, my end. Um, The AI discussion has been going on within the Trade and Tech Council since the beginning, since sort of early last year, but it's been very technical. The idea being, what do we do with this so-called trustworthy AI? And so they've been hashing out very wonky working groups that meet sort of quasi-regularly about metrics and measurements and, you know, bringing in the best of both sides. And that's great. And that's kind of what the industry wants. They want to make sure that, yes, the Europeans are going a mandatory legal route, the Americans not so much, but where's the common ground? That all changed when chat GPT came around, right? And we are seeing this in DC, in Brussels, in Brasilia, in New Delhi, wherever you go, it's sort of, what do we do about generative AI? And so about two, three months ago, the discussion that was very technocratic changed to, okay, let's do something or to be seen to be doing something on generative AI. So you had... Blinken and Investigo and all the others at the final press conference making a concerted effort to discuss something that they're calling a voluntary code of conduct. We don't know what that means, but basically it's a renewed effort to sort of take a big swing at a macro level at generative AI in particular to say look, we know you guys are at the public's freaking out, we're on this. We can, we we're, you know, we're going to do our best to come up with some solutions. These
1: codes of conduct or codes of practice are, uh, I think of as, as sort of very European, um, all about kind of getting industry to agree to certain principles, uh, certain objectives, and then perhaps seeing if that can lead to, I guess, a
0: framework for regulation. So I, I do not want to name drop because I am not a very important person, but, you know, I got to spend some time with um, Margareta Vestager at, at the end of the conference. And, and she was basically saying that this is a two-page briefing note that the commission wrote out themselves. And she personally handed it over to Ramundo over the uh, cod loin and praline lunch, right? So this is a very much currently a European centric approach to codes of conduct. It's a question of will, you know, the Commerce Department and, you know, maybe the National Security Council in the White House, will they agree to it? We need to figure that out. So we now have a couple of so-called Sherpas on both sides to sort of take the loads on on actually what will be involved in this code of conduct. But the idea is to create some sort of transatlantic voluntary code to present at the G7 meeting that is going to be held sometime in the fall.
1: So uh, we've got this separate process, this G7 uh, AI process. And we've got three dedicated expert groups that are coming out of this that'll focus on, it looks like AI terminology and taxonomy, cooperation on AI standards and tools for trustworthy AI and risk management, and monitoring and measuring existing and emerging AI risks. Uh, This is all from the readout from the White House. I see a list of 65 key AI terms essential to understanding risk-based approaches to to AI. Uh, which the uh, US and EU are working to to harmonize. This all sounds great, right? Two of the world's biggest economies uh, working on AI together, but the US and the EU really don't see eye to eye on how to go about this at all.
0: I mean, that's putting... Very mildly, right? So the, I think you need to see this as two tracks. The, the metrics and the measures you mentioned were existing AI work within the Trade and Tech Council that was going on for the last two years. It was very technocratic and frankly, no one cared because it's sort of things that, you know, only the like the, the boffins of the boffins care about to use a British term. Then there's this code of conduct, which is like, Oh crap. We need to be doing something on generative AI now. And therefore we were going to bring in the secretary of state. We're going to bring in. Europe's digital chief to give a broader macro view, which they inserted it at the last minute, literally the two page document discussed on the last day. So that is the thing where we need to focus. But that doesn't get away from the fact that Europe has its AI act, which they're trying to get done by December. It's supposed to, you know, ensure that companies can't use the certain technologies in so-called harmful use cases. And as we've seen in the last sort of month or so, with multiple executive orders and meetings at the White House, and even Sam Altman from OpenAI testifying to the Senate, the US is taking an interest, but no legislation is going to get passed this term before 2024. And the White House itself is taking, from my opinion, a very industry-led approach to what to do about this.
1: Yeah, you had senators kind of talking to Sam Altman, uh, well, by his first name, uh, calling him Sam. They'd all just come off a dinner with him, apparently, the night before the hearing. So you do get a sense of this closeness. When Biden hosted uh, his summit on AI, it was, of course, uh, you know, corporate executives that were in the room uh, rather than critics or or advocates for, for reform.
0: I mean, that makes sense, though, right? I mean, you look at, OK, let's take OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, Meta, as maybe four who have arguably the most invested in AI. And they are all American companies. There is a commercial interest to do this. And, you know, that's a logical way to go about this. You then look at what goes on in Europe. And I'm not saying that as sitting here in London, but like they have a very different approach to this because there are fewer companies in Europe doing this. And therefore, it is seen as a potential another area where the Americans can dominate. Rightly so, they've invested the most, but it is definitely, there is a commercial interest underlying how both sides are looking at this.
1: Is there a sense uh, in the conversations you've had, either, I suppose, uh, with some of the leaders or perhaps uh, in the hallway, that the US is just going to go this laissez-faire route again, and that the same sort of situation that we have with social media is about to repeat itself, where, you know, American corporate dominance power Essentially, uh, these products kind of propagate themselves and Europe is sort of left to kind of try to figure out how to rein in uh, their practices and maybe try to protect their own citizens uh, within their own principles and frameworks.
0: I mean, I think there are people in the administration, well, a lot of people in the administration who also want to protect Americans. Right. This is not about sort of letting industry do what industry does. But I, I do think just looking at the political dynamics in the US right now in terms of Congress and even some of the states, it's very difficult to pass any legislation, let alone digital legislation. And I think with it, when it comes to AI, we're having a lot of rhetoric and a lot of executive orders and even DOJ and the FTC saying like, we'll use our powers to do what we can, but there's no federal privacy law, right? There, there are issues, you know, with how this works in the US that makes it more difficult. And as much as I have issues with the European approach on how they go about regulation. They have been working on an AI act for more than two years. The fact that until very recently, it didn't even look at generative AI is a problem, but they're trying to fix that. So it is just a question of just how both machines work. It's very different and getting them to both agree on some sort of voluntary code beyond platitudes is going to be difficult.
1: So AI was not the only subject uh, on the table at this meeting, and I want to kind of just throw out a few others and kind of get your take on what was discussed. Um, And maybe I'll just give you kind of, you know, one, two word prompts and see what comes out. Uh, One thing that stood out to me, digital identity.
0: Oh, yeah. So this is one of these wonky topics that uh, the Trade and Tech Council is supposed to fix, right? This is about helping propagate yeah, sort of standards and rules across both jurisdictions so they can so you know they can frankly take on China I mean no one wants to mention China on the European side but it's about China and so the idea of trying to share best practices on digital rule as digital ID is is crucial to this because it both plays into the trade aspect but it also allows to sort of digitize hack systems and all the other kind of technocratic things that no one cares about but can be quite a, you know effective when you're looking to cut costs and make things more efficient Semiconductors Ah, the chips to issue. As you know better than anyone, both sides have invested or will be looking to invest billions of dollars to to subsidize domestic semiconductor production. The issue with that is you've got the Intel's and the TSMC's in the world going around saying, hey, DC, Brussels has offered me 10 billion. Can you offer me more? And what they're trying to avoid is this so-called subsidy race. So the semiconductor conversation is basically, let's be very transparent about where we're going to spend our money. So if Intel comes to me and other companies can do it too, if Intel comes to say a US state and says, can you offer me this much money because the Europeans have done it too, they can check to make sure the companies aren't lying, right? And so therefore you're not ending up saying, you know, horse trading between two jurisdictions who have equally valid reasons to bring semiconductor production home but there's a opacity on, on what the, the negotiations look like. So the idea is to sort of share that information at, a, at, a, at the front line so that money can be best spent is the practice. We've got a brief little mention of quantum. Uh, so this is about R&D. Arguably, you know, as you said, the US and Europe are two of the, at least the Western world's biggest democracies and, and uh, market economies Quantum, if you're looking to take on China, is a massive issue. And, and how do you then maximize that so people in Toulouse and Tallahassee can can share, you know, whatever they're doing to, to, to maximum effect? So this is about, again, things that, you know, I, I get why the public don't care that much about. But if you're working in quantum and all of a sudden you can access European Horizon 2020 funding, which is billions of dollars, then that could be quite useful to you and vice versa if you're a European looking to access sort of, I don't know, uh, commerce money as well.
1: You mentioned China and uh, some of your reporting has been on the specter of China. There's also a segment in here uh, really on the geopolitical context. And uh, one of the things that stands out is coordination around disinformation and what the group calls foreign information manipulation and interference. FIMI, uh, which is a new acronym that I'll have to start to adopt that no one
0: will use, to be frank. Um, this is an interesting one. There is an obviously a, a politicized conversation around misinformation and disinformation right now going on in the U.S., particularly in the House of Representatives. And so part of the discussion has been about let's get into some of the misinformation foreign interference question, but let's not touch anything domestic because that has domestic political implications for particularly the U.S. side. So what they're doing and then name checking Russia and China in particular, saying you are interfering in Latin America and Africa. So we are going to coordinate our response in terms of, you know, uh, pre-bunking, as they call it, to getting ahead of Russian disinformation tactics in, say, Colombia to show, like, no, you're doing this. The problem with that is when you talk to the people who are doing this work on the ground and say, hey, look, you get to now work with, you know, The DHS, and then you get to work with the G7 Rapid Reaction Unit and all these other kind of groups that are working on disinfo, they aren't really involved in this new coordination by the TT uh, Trade and Tech Council. So I still remain somewhat skeptical. This is not just, again, platitudes, like what is actually the meat to the bone that we're going to see from this?
1: One of the things that really stood out to me was that some of the language around child safety and online, you know, concern around uh, mental health and and some of those things also made it into uh, the readout. Uh, were you present for any of the discussion about those issues?
0: Biden mentioned in his State of the Union address, and also there is particular child safety legislation coming in Europe. And without being massively cynical, and you know this is an important issue, you don't lose votes by saying I want to protect children online. So and then it is a massive mental health issue. There is a concern going on around. What platforms are doing and what you've seen with a variety of age-appropriate design codes coming out of the U.S. states, this is a big issue coming through at, at least at a local level in the U.S. too. So I think that is a question of we are recognizing collectively that we need to do a better job of protecting children and what they see online.
1: Let's talk about the piece that comes uh, directly after that, uh, which is this concern around uh, enabling independent research I think you were the first to report that this was a kind of focus of the conversations. And I guess the promise was that perhaps there'd be an opportunity to somehow harmonize uh, the independent research access provisions of the Digital Services Act in a way that would make it possible for U.S. researchers to have similar access, uh, or perhaps for there'd be some other codification of such access in the United States. Is that something that got discussed? Is that a possibility?
0: I, I think it is. Um, So let's take a quick step back and say why this is important, right? So we have the US, European, UK, and Indian elections next year, and we still have a very limited knowledge base about what's going on on social media. Data access is crucial to this. It provides transparency, accountability. It lets everyone else, journalists included, know what's going on. So it's really important, and companies that are like Reddit and Twitter are cutting back on this access. So it's quite crucial for this to happen. The Digital Services Act in Europe, provides mandatory requirements for the platforms to do this. And we're going to see that roll out in the next, say, six to 12 months. So the question then becomes, if you're offering it to Europe, you know, ahead of next year's election, the White House and other parts of the administration have a legitimate question say, well, why don't you offer that to us too? And there's a track record for this back in 2018 when Europe passed its GDPR data protection overhaul. Some of those provisions and protections about consent and data usage got Transferred over to the US in sort of a what I call a GDPR light that allowed the the US citizenry to benefit from some of the stuff that was going on in Europe. It wasn't perfect, but it was something similar. And what I think what we're going to see, hopefully by December, at least that's what the timeframe I was given, that some sort of again these are my words DSA light regime coming at least announced by the White House or the administration in December that would allow U.S. researchers to have similar-ish voluntary data access from the platforms akin to what is being made mandatory in Europe. So do you know anything about the sort of
1: U.S. side of that? And that would essentially be done under some kind of executive order uh, or kind of otherwise, I don't know, administered by a federal agency?
0: I mean, that is the, the $64 million question. And and there's been a bit of a churn in the White House in these topics in the last couple of months. So, you know, ask me in a month when I hopefully get to speak some some people uh, to, to know what's going on. But I do think, again, it's very tentative right now, but the language in the Trade and Tech Council communique that came out, which you're reading from, was basically lifted word for word from the Digital Services Act. And so if we're going to take that at their word and there is a conscious effort within the White House to do something on this, and the fact that Congress is pretty much shut down for, for political reasons, you're, I, these are my best supposition. You're looking at some sort of executive order or at least arm twisting of the platforms to say, can you do this? Because what what happened with GDPR is the platforms basically did that themselves based on some strong words from the administration. It, it, will we see an executive order? Or will it be sort of you know, quiet words in a back room somewhere? It's to be determined. If there are any
1: U.S. officials listening to this by any chance that can shed any light, I'm sure I'd like to hear from you, and I'm sure Mark would as well. Let me ask you, uh, grab bag time, Uh, anything that we've not discussed that you think was important? There was a lot around connectivity. Uh, 6G, which some listeners may be surprised to learn, uh, is now on the agenda. It feels like we barely choked down 5G lots of connectivity issues, lots of uh, specific issues to do with uh, particular countries and other types of bilateral conversations that are important both to the US and to the EU. What else should we pay attention to coming out of this?
0: It's an interesting one. I, I think we we can't forget the geopolitics of this. Again, that's, that's kind of my jam. I, I, I kind of look at the tech from a geopolitical lens. But I think the fact that you have these two close allies, despite their sort of so-called frenemy relationship, coming together to talk about, you know, 6G and telecommunications and and semiconductors and all these issues, you can't escape the fact that China is in the room, but not, right? And you look at what the US administration, both Biden and Trump, did around Huawei, and now they're looking to do around TikTok in terms of both, and, and semiconductors to a degree of trying to limit China's encroachment into this sort of tech and digital space, that is underlying some of the reason why, at least from the US side, you're seeing let's work together on 6G standards so we can have a Western consensus to push out China. Let's let's do stuff on semiconductors to push out China. Let's let's look at some of the the other issues from the US side to sort of to to bring the Europeans onto our way of thinking. From a European perspective, it's a bit more complicated because Sometimes the US don't doesn't get this, but like Europe is in a monolith. There are multiple different jurisdictions and countries with different interests. And so from the US European perspective, it's about coaxing the US to take on a more European-style regulatory approach to tech. And that goes from everything from the platform stuff we discussed, even to, to 60, which frankly the Europeans compared to the US is leading on with Nokia and Ericsson versus maybe Intel on the US side. There, so there's a sort of a push and pull between the U.S. kind of hoping and willing the the Europeans to sort of take on the anti-China hawkish view. And in from Brussels, the idea that, you know, we're winning this whole Brussels effect by sort of nudging the Americans towards a European style sort of regulatory regime. It's somewhere in between. Like, neither side is getting everything they want. But the fact that you've got Anthony Blinken, Gina Raimundo, Catherine Tai and the Europeans coming to a A town in the middle of nowhere, it literally is a middle of nowhere for two days, I think is emblematic of at least that transatlantic ties being fostered again.
1: When you're there in the room, is there a sense of a pecking order? Is there a sense of U.S. throwing its weight around and its sort of innovative muscle or European officials having to kind of, uh, I I suppose, advocate for uh, their point of view in this regard? Do you get a sense of that um, as an
0: observer? I, I think it's, um, I mean, very mutual. I mean, I, I know that it'd be nice if one was sort of bullying the other, because that's a better story. But I do think there's a lot of mutual respect between sort of the, the the mid-career officials who have to sort of sit in endless Zoom calls to like hash this stuff out. I think there is a, a relationship then again, it's not about tech issues, but... The Trade and Tech Council also looked at export controls on Russia after the the war, and then it was very successful to to sort of hash out that very quickly because the officials knew each other. I do think there is a a question about what happens next year if there is a change in administration in the US. Does does it stick around? Is this just another glorified four-year pet project for Photoshop, for photo opportunities, and then it disappears? That is a massive unknown, right? Um, so that that is is a question. But I do think currently, and this is partly because of a lack of muscle memory in the US side when it comes to digital policymaking, the fact that the Europeans, like it or not, have the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, the Digital Governance Act, the Data Act, the AI Act, and GDPR, So that's a lot of acronyms, they just have a bigger pool of resources to bring to the table compared to what what does the u.s offer don't play nice with china is pretty much the message so they the u.s has a lot of the good technical skills in nist and ntia to help with some of the standardization but in terms of you know here is a prescribed rulebook which you can do now it is a unfortunate fact that the europeans just have more of that than the u.s does at the moment
1: you know, you've mentioned this idea, this conversation is very much happening under the specter of China, and that to some extent it's about harmonizing US and EU views. But do you think there's a shared sense of the future between these two delegations, of the future that we want, uh, of Silicon Valley's role in, in the future that we want? Or is it still
0: coming from a very different place? It's still coming from a very different place. And I say that with with someone who has a foot in both camps, um, that there is still a, you know, regulate first, ask questions later mentality in Europe that doesn't really have any commercial imperative, mostly because there are no companies really here. Uh, Sorry, Spotify and SAP. Uh, And on the US side, because there was a lack of movement in in Congress and then in the Beltway, you know, and because the companies are primarily based in the US, there is a sort of legitimate commercial reason why, you know, a sort of, again, that we've moved on from this phrase, but sort of move fast and break things mentality still exists to a degree. And I, st- I still think there is a wariness from the U.S. to think that everything out of Europe is protectionist and the Europeans still have a misconception that all American policymakers think they're in the pockets of Meta and, and Amazon. Like neither is true, but I still think despite two years of, multiple discussions, regular meetings, there is still a question of, we have a different approach to this. We don't really have a solution, but if we keep meeting in the middle of nowhere in Sweden every six months, or Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia, no, excuse me, Pittsburgh, it was in in the US, we can figure something out. And what we see with the voluntary code of conduct on AI and generative AI is a clear example of, that's a wonderful headline, but it's a two-page document that has no detail to it and you have less than six months to formulate that to a to the G7. What happens with it, and if anything happens from it, is a clear litmus test, both for the Trade and Tech Council, but also for the transatlantic relationship.
1: Well, perhaps we'll have you back uh, when you've had a chance to go to Hiroshima. And uh, maybe uh, if they didn't give you any cod and pralines, maybe you'll, you'll have some nice food at that meeting. I hope so. Mark, thank you very much for joining me and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin@techpolicy.press at or find us on Twitter at @techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones. Thank you for listening.
0: Aussie Press.